ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. In many towns in the bush, the footy club is at the heart of the community. The footy game is the place to meet up with your mates. It keeps the kids fit and out of mischief. And there's nothing that unites a community like shouting for your home team. Today, we're going to head to a remote town in the Kimberley region of Western Australia, Halls Creek. Now, in Halls Creek, the success of the footy team is not just about premierships and hard-fought wins, but also about changing lives in a community saddled with enormous social problems. But despite a stellar season this year, things went pear-shaped for the local team after the final whistle blew. We'll find out more about that. I'm Sinead Mangan and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wadjuk Country, Perth. After months of debate, the Albanese government's Housing Australia Future Fund bill is set to pass Parliament after a deal was brokered with the Greens. With $3 billion being spent this year on public and community housing, directly out of government revenue. The Greens are in a position where we will support the government's housing legislation uh, and be uh, pre- we're prepared, subject to the Senate, to pass it through the Senate this week. Greens leader Adam Bant showing his support for the Housing Australia Future Fund. The $10 billion fund includes a commitment to build 30,000 new and affordable homes to be built in its first five years. But to give you an extent of the availability of social housing in Australia. Now, I looked at a report by the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, and they said a year ago there was almost 443,000 social housing dwellings in the whole of Australia. Now, three quarters of that public and community housing were in major cities. A map shows inner city Melbourne had the most stock and the availability of social housing stock in regional Australia is highest in the Hunter Valley in New South Wales. Independent member for Indi in Victoria, Helen Haynes, also put the spotlight on the housing situation in regional Australia. She says the supply of all types of housing in regional Australia is holding it back. And today she introduced her own private member's bill to lock in the proportion of housing funding that goes to the regions. I want to make sure that uh, that we see that 30% of the funding does flow to rural and regional Australia and therefore we need to make sure that that Act, and it will become the half uh, in due course, is really clear in its intent and that it specifies rural, regional and remote Australia. I want to make sure that the Oversight Board includes someone from rural and regional Australia who's got expertise and can make sure again that the context-specific needs of the regions is taken care of. And I want to make sure that the Minister reports to the Parliament about what proportion of monies do flow to the regions. Dr Helen Haynes, who today introduced the Unlocking Regional Housing Bill to Parliament. You're listening to Australia Wide. On ABC Radio. A tropical island off the Capricorn coast has become the first carbon negative island in the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park in Queensland. Kunami, or North Keppel Island, is home to an environmental education centre which is run by the Queensland Government. To power the centre, the state government has spent $1.4 million to build the largest renewable energy system on a state school site. Rachel McGee has this story. 
An island paradise off central Queensland. Konomi North Keppel Island is also a classroom. We run residential programs for Queensland state schools. Uh, students usually come to us for th either three or five day camps. Um, and the programs we run here directly align to the Australian curriculum. That's Konomi Island Environmental Education Centre Principal Andrew Gill. Rather being in, within four walls, those students are out here on the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park in Mockleborough country, learning about climate change, the Great Barrier Reef, collecting um, scientific data. And we do cultural walks, kayaking, sustainable fishing. The centre is owned and operated by the Queensland Government. To power the site, the government has built the largest renewable energy system on a state school site. Education Minister Grace Grace visited the island to officially open the new energy system. We are now fully off the grid and we have invested around $1.4 million for 258 solar panels. We've got 36 lithium phosphate batteries, which makes this island now completely carbon neutral and it is the first island in the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park that is carbon negative. Gino Fiocco is the head engineer behind the project. We were very proud to submit as part of a tender uh, high, high Australian made content of the technology. All the solar panels you can see here are made in Australia. Uh, we even have components in the, uh, in the building that are actually designed, engineered and made in Brisbane. In terms of kilowatts, it's uh, just shy of 100 kilowatts of peak solar power. In terms of energy yield, we're looking at maybe 450 kilowatt hours of energy produced by the array uh, on an average day throughout the year. 450 kilowatt hours, to put that in, in perspective, the average Queensland home uh, these days uses around 21, 22 kilowatt hours. So yeah, 450 kilowatt hours, that's a, that's a lot of homes that this system can, can provide energy for. The Labor member for Keppel, Brittany Lauger, says she hopes to see the system used as a blueprint for other island developments. On how you can make an off-grid system, uh, make a development more sustainable, but then uh, in this case incorporate education so that these students are going into their lives and around the world to transform the way that we live around the world. Mr Gill says the new energy system would be used as an educational resource to teach the students about renewables. It ties actually into the snorkelling. So we get students from all over Queensland and we tell them how connected they really are to this place and they're connected through the damage that's being done um, back in their communities with climate change. So what we actually do firstly is take them out snorkelling to a reef that's seen the impact of climate change. Uh, we show them that reef and then we actually take them to a reef that is in really good health um, so they can then see the difference. Um, and then from there we learn about the renewable energies uh, and then we go and we, we, we go up to our system and the students are able to have a look up there. But the other great thing is they're actually living in a sustainable community for five days where they get to experience that. And then what we hope is that when they go back to their community, they then become the teacher to enact some um, things within their lifestyles, within their community, their school community. Wapabara traditional owners say they're proud of the island's progress. I think it's wonderful here now and for the future and for um, our Wapabara and Konami, of course, and for the future for making it better for our beautiful island, which is paradise. Oh, I think it's amazing, you know, how this education centre and what the education department is doing to make it so sustainable and, and environmental and, and it, it's helping to bring our island alive.
Wapabara elders Julie Blair and Warren Cal Glenithcroft ending that report by Rachel McGee on North Keppel Island. All around the country, you're on ABC Australia Wide. I eat corn sometimes and my mum cooks it in the oven. Well, Charles, how much rain did we have? He said, no, none. I said, you're mad, man. ABC Australia Wide. Because I came from Wynyard area where it rains and rains and rains. And when it's not raining, it's raining more. On ABC Radio. Let's go now to the Indigenous community of Yargi in the town Holds Creek in Western Australia's Kimberley region. Last month, Yargi Football Club won the Senior Men's Premiership in the East Kimberley Football League Southern Division. The Dockers say it was a huge moment given many of their players came from troubled backgrounds involving crime and low school attendance. But after the match, a large spectator brawl cast a shadow over their achievements. Now players and coaches have called for parents and elders to set a better example so games do not become marred by anti-social behaviour. Ted O'Connor reports from Yargi. At the Yaji Dockers, success isn't just kicking goals and winning flags. It means changing lives for young Indigenous people in a community with entrenched social problems. This season, 16-year-old Jock Mosquito returned home from boarding school in Perth and noticed a positive vibe on the training track. The young boys, because um, they were getting into a lot of troubles and they were just walking around like um, that they just owned the streets and all that, you know. We started to drag them into footy to um, sort of change their life for a bit, you know, to do something, not just to sit around at home and walk the streets at night, just doing nothing, just <coughs> go to training, you know, to make yourself busy and all that you, throughout the years and actually get a game which is fun and, yeah. Assistant coach Dennis Chungala says many boys and young men in the Kimberley town of Halls Creek are caught up in a heartbreaking intergenerational cycle. That means crime alcohol and drug abuse and low school attendance. The Gidger and Walmajari man says the team's nurturing culture helps steer them onto the right path. Most of our young boys, they've been getting involved with stolen cars and they've been getting into lots of troubles and get these young boys involved in the football. And week by week, we didn't know that these mob were going to turn or change overnight or things like that, but we kept on just encouraging them to come to training and... And for that, um, I've seen a change in their life. Right? Each week, training come Monday to Wednesday, you know, they would be there first thing. But the Dockers, players and coaches say what should have been the perfect season has been tarnished. Yaji's slick and skillful brand of football propelled them to the grand final. They play the Roos, a team based in the community of Billaluna, and defeated them by 33 points. When the siren blew, spectators came onto the field and a brawl broke out, injuring three police officers. More than a dozen people have been charged for their alleged involvement and the brawl has become the subject of criminal court proceedings. Jamal Stretch is one of Yaji's young guns. The former AFL draft prospect says the incident meant he and the other champions were not awarded their premiership medallions after the game. Um, well, I reckon football is... Like everybody loved football, even most of the young fellas loved playing footy. Yeah, we wanna like we wanna see clean, clean footy. When we even when we have the presentation, when we're not getting any presentation. Mm. Yeah. And how that make you feel? Feel bad. Good. Yeah, that we're not getting any anything like medal or anything. 
The ABC has spoken to several leaders in Horse Creek and surrounding communities who say in recent years too often football has become a magnet for drunken antisocial behaviour, which often involves family feuding. Yaji Community Chair Rose Stretch fears the next generation of children will grow up thinking violence is acceptable. They're going to say, well, if that community can do it, we'll do it too. You see? They can go out there. When, when they're old enough like these, well, you, you know, you came to our community, you can fight with my family, I'm going to fight you now. We don't really want that to happen to our kid. We try to tell them, don't, you know, just don't worry about it, push it aside, but hey... We mightn't be around when they grow up. Dennis Chungler says parents and elders should tackle feuding and antisocial behaviour by being better role models. Is that the way you want to treat your, uh, bring your kids up on feuding and things? No, you don't want to see that. You're a role model to your community, you're a role model to your family, even to your kids. How do you want to see them grow up? By fighting? You lead them by fighting, they'll, of course they're going to fight. Jock Mosquito is now looking ahead to next season. He wants to play in front of big crowds who flock to enjoy the rich pool of talent the community has to offer. It's footy, you know, you, you dare to play footy, you know, you dare to play your game. You can't, you can't just come up on the field and just want to fight somebody and all that, you know, bringing up all your um, trouble there, you know, because football is not a place to start fighting. And thanks so much to Ted O'Connor for bringing that report to us from Yardie in um, Western Australia's Kimberley region. You're listening to Australia Wide. On ABC Radio. We're sticking in WA now where a young Esperance pilot has taken off on an adventure that most of us can only dream about to fly around Australia in his small plane visiting regional towns and communities on a journey that will take him two and a half months. But for 22-year-old Hayden MacDonald, it's more than a journey, it's a mission. Hayden is autistic and he's been battling authorities to allow him to gain a pilot's licence that will allow him to eventually fly for a living. Our reporter Mark Bennett spoke with him and his greatest supporter, his mother Fleur MacDonald, on the eve of his departure. Contact! It doesn't feel real because I've been working on this thing for the past year and a half. I'm trying to keep cool myself about it because otherwise I'll lose myself to both fear and nervousness. Hayden MacDonald is sitting in the small cockpit of his tiny ultralight plane at his hometown, Esperance, on the south coast of Western Australia. It will not only be his home for the next ten weeks, but also his calling card to speak out about his right to be assessed on his ability, not his disability. He'll be flying solo from WA to South Australia down to Victoria, then north up through New South Wales, Queensland and the Northern Territory, before returning to WA, visiting only regional towns and small rural communities. When you get to these smaller towns, who are you going to be going to see and telling your story to? Schools, to community groups or anyone who's interested, including parents who are autistic. Sorry, I have who are autistic or have autistic kids. What I want to do is I'll create understanding and acceptance about autism through education because the problem 
the way we do things is not inclusive. We're slowly getting better, but it's not enough. The public majority still treat us like we're a burden. We're someone that needs to be fixed. I am sick and tired of that. So, uh, I want people to move from what's known as the medical model to the social model, which is social model uses practical solutions that are tailored for that individual. And you're flying because obviously part of the issue that, that you've had as a pilot is trying to break through that kind of barrier in your own pursuit of what, what you're interested in in flying. Yes, so for context, I'm on known as a recreational pilot certificate, which only drop, requires a driver's licence. You don't need a medical. But to give you the context as well to our non-pilot listeners and viewers, if you want to fly in the general aviation and commercial aviation, you need a, what's known as a class one or class two medical. Class one is for your or your commercial operations, and then your class two is for your private and general aviation operations. That class two is required to get a class one. I failed at the class two because I am simply a autistic. They see me as a complex case. That something that is something that is not worth trying to passing through. Standing behind Hayden's flying mission is his mother, renowned author Fleur MacDonald. Last week, for the first time, she decided to go flying with her son just to reassure herself he can do it. Really confident. Uh, it was funny because I was a little bit nervous and I didn't really want to go. Uh, and I jokingly said to him that it would be 600 hours. He had to fly 600 hours before I went. He's flown 150. And I just thought that I'd better go so I could see how he was. I've flown with you know quite a few private pilots and I have absolute confidence in Hayden. He's, um, I was really impressed when I got up there and I felt really safe. Hayden's journey has sparked interest from around the nation. We had lots of other people get in contact with us, people that are just like Hayden and I. You know, they've got mum and dad, their kids are autistic, and uh, they love aviation, they want to fly too. And, you know, if Hayden gets back and he does his medical again, and again he's not successful, we're happy enough to put up the white flag. We're not about, um, you know, having problems in aviation safety. That's not what we're about. It's just... We're just going to have a go. We can't, we can't really finish this unless we've exhausted all avenues and, and given Hayden the best opportunity to achieve what he, his goals and his dreams. Hayden's flight path can be followed on his website, wingswithoutbarriers.com.au. He expects to return home by mid-November. What an extraordinary thing to do. That's Hayden MacDonald and Fleur MacDonald speaking to our reporter, Mark Bennett, and good luck with your travels, Hayden. One of the questions was, Dane, do you, do you remember when Grandad tipped the back over out at the ball? ABC Australia Wide. And it was like, zzz, zzz. I thought, okie doke, that thing works. On ABC Radio. 
Australian athletes have saddled up for some lesser-known world championships. The best of the best in horseback archery have travelled to Mongolia to show off their skills. But the sport is more than just points and trophies for these riders. Bridget Herman has the story. With a bow and arrow at his side, horse archer Don Woods wouldn't look out of place in a medieval battlefield. But it's a far cry from his home on a station north of Cooktown in far north Queensland. It's also a long way from Lambator in Mongolia, where he's competing for the first time at the Horse Archery World Championships. Pretty epic, really. Like, <laughs> it's, um, it's a big sense of excitement. Although he says the competition could mount a challenge. I guess that's what I'll find out. <laughs> <laughs> I know I do all right in Australia, but um, it's a completely different ball game. Mongolians basically, they basically invented the sport, the way of life for them in the past. So, yeah, I think, I think it's a matter of going over to basically the best. So. Horseback archery is exactly what it sounds like. Mainly a sport that centres around balance and uh, hand-eye coordination. The, the ability to, at the end of the day, get an arrow on a string and um, hit, shoot it accurately at a target. And that's all while riding a 700 kilogram animal, of course. <laughs> this is the first International Horse Archery Alliance World Championships since 2018, after the coronavirus pandemic disrupted the last scheduled one in 2020. IHAA Australian representative and a competitor at the World Championship, Liberty Demon, says pandemic restrictions pulled the sport to a halt. She says in Australia, all competitions and training had to be stopped. Uh, it was pretty heartbreaking at the time and unfortunately we still had people that were seeking you know, information and demonstrating interest in the sport so having to turn those people away when otherwise we'd be in a position to be able to provide them with you know, an introduction to a sport that a lot of people find really fascinating and really engaging was quite a disappointment at the time. But this year, with competitions back, she says the sport is charging full speed once again. Oh, it's been fantastic. The, the ability to be able to start to engage in our broader community for me um, and, and see a return to the sport has been an absolute delight. It's something that's been lacking for a number of years now and the fact that we're able to start to share this sport with people around the place is really special and really important to me. And other riders are starting to take notice of the niche sport. It really is, gives you an alternative discipline to your staples of show jumping and dressage and cross country. That's Sally Wiseman from Pony Club Australia. She says horse archery is being popular with riders since Pony Club recognised the discipline about two years ago. Also because it's very tactical with your bow and arrow, um, it really has diversified the offering for our members. So especially with boys, so we have a lot of girls in Pony Club and a smaller membership of boys and um, having a bow and arrow um, along with things like tent pegging and um, polo cross and horse ball, they really love that tactical feel. And then once one boy joins, they're all into team sports, they all want to be able to, um, to join up. So it's been very, very popular with the kids. Back in Tarago in New South Wales, Ms Demon says the thrill and skill of horse archery is what draws people in. 
Uh, so horse archery is quite a diverse and dynamic sport. It has grounding in many countries around the world as a traditional sport. And so there's history that goes back in terms of hunting and sport, you know, many hundreds of years. The complexity of riding a horse without holding on to the reins whilst shooting a bow and arrow at pace uh, is something that a lot of people find quite interesting and uh, exciting and we're drawing quite a crowd at the moment. But for Don Woods, the love of horse archery was born out of a childhood dream. My little boys go through the Robin Hood stage, you know, on the be Robin Hood and shooting arrows and bows and all of that. I guess I just got a little obsessed. I got my first bow on my ninth Christmas, I think, and I remember the excitement, the shooting, and after that there was just no real stopping me. I uh, got a little obsessed and I can't actually tell you how many bows I own. <laughs> But yeah, I've spent a lot of hours shooting now, and then about five years ago I discovered the horse archery, and it's, yeah, I haven't really looked back since. And it's taken him all the way to Mongolia, horseback archer Don Woods from Cooktown in far north Queensland, finishing that story from our reporter Bridget Herman. And that is Australia Wide for this Monday. Remember, you can listen to Australia Wide whenever you want to. Just subscribe to the podcast, which you can find on the ABC Listen app. If you search for Australia Wide, you'll find us there and just hit subscribe while you're there. I'm Sinead Mangan. I hope you're having a lovely evening. Cheerio. ABC Listen.